Hello, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvee. I'm joined by Ash Milton, our managing editor, as usual. Hey, everyone. So today we're going to talk about terraforming Earth. We recently had a great article, uh, well, an interview, really, on the topic. Um, interview with Benjamin Bratton, uh, who has a new book called the Terraforming. We had actually been thinking about this topic previously for the last few months. It's It's been on our mind. We've got something coming out in Palladium One, our first print edition. My essay in in that compilation has a section about terraforming Earth, and this is something that's sort of been on our mind for a while, perhaps before, but but it really kicked off with Palladium with our article some time ago entitled. Um, yeah, that piece was called "Ancient Upheavals Show How to Geoengineer a Stable Climate." Yeah, and and that that one kind of went into this whole idea of the Anthropocene and of our our effects on the Earth's climate. Mm, and that was Patrick Miller, by the way. Yeah, Patrick Miller, and about sort of past changes in climate throughout geological history. So, yeah, we wanted a chance to to really start to dig into this topic. So, Ash, do you have some thoughts to to kick us off with here? following on the interview or or anything else this uh, i enjoyed this interview i think one of the first things that came up was this concept of degrowth which i think a lot of our listeners have probably encountered in various ways before yeah we've all heard of it yeah i think it's less of a a well-defined thought-out movement than a tendency but i think it's something you also see on the whole spectrum from kind of radical activist organizations you know, you get these really hardcore anarcho-primitivist or whatever types. You get the more establishment-tolerated or friendly organizations like Extinction Rebellion, where, you know, they they are allowed to be on the front pages of, of media and so on. But then you also, I think, in the way that a lot of elites, a lot of people with power and voice in government are thinking about development technology or just the material advancement of humankind in general it's not that there is a fully fleshed out ideology of degrowth that does exist in i think especially in the more radical circles but in general we have at palladium criticized just reductionist concepts of growth like just gdp just growth in kind of a base sense no reference to what the technologies are or what kind of lifestyle and society humans are yeah, actually building with what, it. What it's all for. Right. But I think for us, there, the question has always been, what are the proper vectors of growth that we actually want? Presumably, there are forms of life we do want to build. And there are forms of material advancement that we want. And a, a civilization that lives in harmony with the earth, but that also goes beyond the earth, that gets us off this rock. And for us... The question is, what kind of growth do we want and where growth is needed for human advancement? There, we want to accelerate it quite powerfully. And so I think for us, the question is, there are all these contradictions uh, you know, of sustainability and other issues that come up, but how do we resolve them? Whereas I think the degrowth tendency ends up thinking of the whole thing as more or less doomed, destructive, humans become this parasitic force on the earth necessarily, not just because we have made certain missteps or because some contradictions exist in our society. And even though, you know, political pressure and so on, no one's actually going to go ahead and say we want to intentionally collapse the economy. 
but I think you see it with this hesitancy to embrace any kind of bold material advancement, bold projects in the society. You know, you're allowed to reduce emissions, but you're not allowed to talk about how you could actively use technologies uh, to sequester it back from the atmosphere. You're not allowed to talk about actively taking stewardship of the planet and of our ecosystems. We, the whole frame is one of minimizing human impact and human presence. And that ultimately sees humanity, I think, as a negative force. And we want to see humanity, do see humanity as a positive force. Yes, some of our actions as a society have been destructive. We need to fix that. But ultimately, humans should be stewards of the Earth. And so the terraforming Earth idea, I think, has to start with what exactly is behind this degrowth mindset and how do we confront it and how do we supplant it with a superior vision? Yeah, so I guess a, a good place to start actually is to to just make the case for the degrowth thing. You know, not that this is something I, I fully believe. I think there's some wrong premises in here. But basically, the case for it is that you have this kind of beautiful, productive thing going on with pre-human nature. And, you know, you, you have an evolution over time of different forms of life, but but largely you have kind of this this planet covered with flourishing life. When we go out and look at it, it is beautiful. We see that it represents something good, and, and we, we sort of, you know, can become attached to that. And then we look at kind of the stuff that we as humans have done so far. You know, a lot of it is, is great, uh, great advancements, beautiful things we've created, but a lot of it has come at the expense of our natural environment and of the beauty of our natural environment. You can easily kind of get into this idea that, well, humans are actually just ruining the planet, especially with ideas like global warming, where it's presented as, you know, there's this normal natural balance. We've come and thrown the balance off. We're too big. We're living outside of our means. And, you know, deforestation, like some some really horrific things like black hole clear cut logging is is horrific. There's there's no other word for it. And, and other things like that, you know, some of the things that go on in mining with with uh, oil production and, and so on. Some some really nasty looking uh, and nasty feeling things that we're doing to our environment. There's sort of two broad tendencies, I think that sort of pull in opposite directions. One is to see uh, see this contradiction between the human advancement, the human production, human industry, and the the natural harmony and beauty of nature, uh, of, of you know, our, our kind of biological ecosystem. So, you know, one tendency resolves it towards Hey, we actually have to stay within limits. You know, we have to we have to limit mankind to 500 million at most. That means obviously some depopulation. You know, we have to stop eating meat because we have to cut down trees to make ranch land. We have to, you know, stop driving so much. We have to stop traveling so much. We have to stop having so much material wealth because those things take energy. Energy comes from oil. Oil creates carbon in the atmosphere. Carbon in the atmosphere is throwing the world out of balance. So that's one tendency is and then and then, like you said, sort of the the harshest kind of expression of that is is humanity is this parasite humanity is a as a pure blight it's some some evil force from outside 
of the natural order that has come and disrupted the planet. So that's that's that view. I, you know, I, I hope I'm not caricaturing it. I, I think that's that's basically the logic. On the other hand, you have the sort of what you might call the callous view, which is that, you know, we need this energy, we need this wealth, we want it. And actually, you know, we're going to resolve this contradiction by saying we don't care about the natural beauty of things. That's some some sentimental nonsense. So that's the two tendencies. You have this degrowth tendency and you have this sort of callous growth tendency. And and I think both of them kind of proceed by denying the value of something that is in fact valuable. And the degrowth tendency proceeds by denying the value of human progress and the activities that humans are doing, which in many ways I think is is actually the central story of what's going on uh, on Earth. I mean, certainly in terms of raw material uh, energy flows and, and information flows, the human story is very much the center of what's happening. Yeah, I, I actually think that one of the important things to keep in mind in confronting the uh, the degrowth mindset is history itself, right? Where a lot of these icons will pop up as symbols of a harmonious environment where humans are absent like the Amazon, but humans have been around a long time, even in the Americas, we've been around a long time. And humans in the Amazon have been a major contributor to that ecosystem. They've actively stewarded that environment. And I, you know, they've been there at least 13,000 years. Recent archaeological finds they may have even been there tens of thousands of years, potentially. But we know, for example, one of my favorite examples of ecological technology in the Amazon, that's pre-Columbian, is the Mayans used to cultivate breadnut trees around their uh, around their temples, and these were ultimately spread by bats throughout the Amazon. That's why they're highly prevalent in some of those areas. But they were planting them in order to take advantage of limestone, and so there was this relationship where human action on the Amazon actually created this highly sustainable, super abundant ecosystem but in a way that also accelerated the growth of their civilization. And I think that if we can look at historical examples like that and take some of these archetypes of a healthy ecosystem, the lungs of the earth, this kind of thing, and actually link it to human progress, show the human the role humans have played in their creation and sustainment, that's going to be one of the most important things just for mindset. I think another thing to deconstruct here is is like the idea that the Amazon, for example, is a natural ecosystem. <laughs> it kind of isn't. I mean, we could just cut the word "natural" uh, if it's spookish. It it is no, no. I mean, there's there's a real concept there, right? And 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 by natural, we sort of mean pre-human, right? There was actually a lot of civilization there. The, the a good fraction of that area was cultivated, like you say, but. You know, with with the Colombian exchange and, and perhaps a little bit before the Colombian exchange, where Euro, Eurasian diseases came to North America and, and really messed things up, there was a collapse in civilization and the jungle reclaimed all that land. But it was just kind of an overgrowth of, you know, the plants that they were using and, and, and the things that were just around. It's sort of reminiscent, actually, if you look at the pictures after Chernobyl or the, the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan, the pictures show sort of 
you know, a sort of semi-urban landscape, but then it's overgrown with a jungle and it happens really quickly. Um, now, and if it's been even 400 years uh, since since there was civilization in the Amazon, it's it's just like this, this jungle comes back. The other thing to keep in mind there is, you know, you could argue, oh, well, that's just nature returning after the collapse of civilization. That's a good thing, blah, blah, blah. But another thing to keep in mind, like this is where we sort of get into this idea of the Anthropocene, and and some of the ideas that that Bratton was talking about when humans came to North America, suddenly there's this uh, mass extinction of megafauna. All these, you know, very interesting species. I'm not sure whether the mastodons were still around, but things like that, giant sloths. Th- there's all these sort of exotic, huge mammals that that were occupying North America, and the ecosystem was just very different. This is something we explored with the Pleistocene Park guy. I forget his name off the top of my head. Basically, during the Ice Age, the Earth's ecosystem looked very different. And not just because it was colder, but also because there was animals everywhere. And then when we ate all the animals, suddenly the grassland steppe ecosystem that was supported by a heavy animal population gave way to this more forested kind of ecosystem so even even some of these ecosystems that we think of as natural are actually themselves kind of this post-apocalyptic human affected ecosystem that isn't the pre-human ecosystem and isn't as good as the pre-human ecosystem and isn't going to return to the pre-human ecosystem even in the absence of human action so that's sort of interesting to me that we've already had irreversible effects on on things we think of as natural like if if you kind of take a restorationist view of nature, it's like oh well we should put nature back, uh, you know restore the na- the native plants, kind of remove our footprint and so on. You're actually talking about well how how long do we roll back the clock and and how big do we want that project to be? Because we've had a very large effect even before industry, even before agriculture. By the way, the name of that guy was Nikita Zimov, and he yes, runs Zimov. the Pleistocene Park in. Siberia, I believe, deep Siberia. Anyway, I I think the uh, you know you're mentioning nature here, and I I'd like to dig into that concept a little bit because I think that the degrowth mindset is premised on two things. First, the idea that preserving nature, in some meaning of that phrase, is the most important thing that we can do. The second, that nature is almost inherently non-human, and that humans are absent in it. And I think that conception of nature that word is a kind of weird relic word where it meant something entirely different you know in the pre-modern era and then it is kind of in the process of the enlightenment early modernity maybe even the early industrial revolution that it starts to change i think that the romantics in particular seem to use it in this non-human untouched sense uh, you know, you read, you know, we, we've we've sort of, I think, had private discussions before about romanticism and so on. Maybe we want to bring some of that up here. But the romantics tend to, in reaction to things like the French Revolution, to things like industrialism, they tend to see nature as primeval, as innocent, as untouched by modernity, and in at least some manifestations, as even untouched by human beings. May, you know, maybe you even have a conception of some kind of original state of humanity where we are not yet a society pre-social man. I think this is a quite nonsensical concept, but it seems to be quite core to 
a lot of ways we think about the world. Th this concept of nature is weird in that what it kind of does is it takes something real from that term. Now, in the past, in the medieval era, in the classical era, nature referred to the fundamental substance or essence, the essential being of a thing. And to talk about a thing's nature meant not only to talk about what it was, but also what it was supposed to be. How did it look like if it was properly ordered? What kind of telos did it have? What did it look like when it was existing in harmony with itself and with the things around it? And I think if we take back that sense of the word nature, you know, as a personal thought experiment, it would lead us to think in quite different ways about the world. So if we take the Amazon, for example, yeah, the Amazon is nature. It has a nature. It's a part of nature. It's a part of the nature of our global ecosystem. It's one of the lungs of the earth, right? That is a correct way of thinking about it. But does the human presence necessarily stop it from fulfilling that function, both internally and, you know, in the role it plays with the rest of the world? No. And we know it hasn't because historically we have created the Amazon as it is now. We have changed it. We have disrupted it. And yet it has found a new kind of stability that was able to be harmonious and sustainable, right? It was not, you can have such extreme imbalances that an entire system is basically now racing toward destruction. But disruption doesn't do that in every case. And if humans have been a disruptive force, it has usually, right, almost, I mean, every other time, maybe up until this disruption of modernity, it's resulted in some kind of sustainable equilibrium where now things play different roles in the overall order. And I kind of want to dig into reclaiming some of that understanding of nature when we look at the idea of terraforming Earth. Yeah, so just just to finish up the, the kind of critique of the concept of nature as we have it, I mentioned that dichotomy or, or two different tendencies, two opposite tendencies, where you, you either sort of reject the value of nature or you reject the value of humans. That binary is forced by this concept of nature that we have that, that separates man from nature and says that they are sort of like different spheres of value that are not commensurable. And if they're not commensurable, they don't interact, then you know it, it's very easy to have to sort of choose one or the other, or you have this like weird kind of trade-off situation. So I think as we're kind of recuperating the idea of nature and, and re-engineering it, the core of that re-engineering has to be that we're looking for a unified concept that explains and values both the human contributions and the pre-human contributions. Some, some higher teleology to this whole enterprise of life, including industrial life, that can help us to see the value and see the proper interactions between the non-human parts of our ecosystem and human parts of our ecosystem. So that's, that's where I want to go with this. I want to explore that idea. What is the new conception of how we think about the, the nature of life uh, on Earth? Uh, and the nature of our ecosystems and and their purposes and their values and a new conception of what humans are doing as well that 
that can help us resolve this question. So I want to go there. So a new conception of growth. Yeah, right. And, and a new conception of growth that, that goes beyond, you know, any individual economic paradigm, beyond any individual civilization, and even beyond uh, humans. The convergence set that, that's coming here is something like we accept human beings as having a place, let's say even a role in the nature of the world, of its ecology, of its of its ecosystems, of the processes that work in it. And when we even look at how humans disrupt certain ecosystems, I think we basically start, instead of assuming that that disruption is inherently negative, even disruption that is destructive for a time, right? Like just in, in basic terms of things like green technology, what we see with the process of industrialization is, yeah, there is a period, usually, you know, in Europe, it was a couple hundred years. In currently uh, industrializing countries, uh, it seems to be more like 50 years now. The timeline is shortening, but there is a period where ecological destruction increases as development occurs. But as countries reach kind of full industrialization, a certain level of material advancement, that is then where discussions like green technology take over. That's where the society starts to prioritize a clean environment and sustainable uh, economic involvement with its resources and so on. So there is basically a disruption that goes on. But then once that disruption has occurred, you now have the ability to address these larger scale questions that people are looking at with you know, the, the sort of green related issues on a higher scale and to the degree where humans can now actually intentionally create sustainable and valuable natural ecologies. So I don't want to be too charitable to the view that when an economy gets to a certain level of development, it starts caring about other things. I think there is an important case to be made. This isn't necessarily central here, but there's an important case to be made that what actually happened was we got to a certain level of progress, growth, actual progress, and then stalled out and stopped being able to deliver progress. And then thereafter needed things, needed still needed a progress narrative. So we kind of came up with some other stuff because we could no longer actually achieve industrial progress. We, we sort of came up with this, this idea of, of, oh, well, at least we have clean air. You know, if we don't have factories anymore, at least we have clean air. Like we're not actually doing anything industrial, but pollution is down. And so, you know, maybe that's maybe that's a, a legitimate change in priorities. You know, it's like, well, we we had grown enough and actually we needed to think about this other thing for a while. I think there's something to that. I also think there's something to the idea that when uh, when a society loses the ability to achieve certain types of progress, people will try to message that as a good thing, and it may not be a good thing. I think something else you're getting at there, which is a good point, is that there's this process of growing in power over the environment and growing in consciousness of the impact on that environment to the point where we are starting to take responsibility for larger and larger questions. So let, let's try to take a crack at this kind of more fundamental vision of growth that, that goes beyond pre-human nature and, and goes beyond man. First of all, 
I want to reframe a little bit how nature works. Nature is not a, you know, nice, harmonious, kind of everyone's friendly, you know, uh, sort of thing. It's not balanced. It's not in some kind of eternal balance. It's, it's changing often. Uh, and the changes are of the form of extreme disruptions, either from volcanoes or meteors, things from outside the system or things within the system. You get some plant, you get some animal that gets out of hand and it takes over the whole ecosystem and destroys everything and becomes the new normal. We discussed in the geoengineering piece about how a certain little fern, a little aquatic fern, had taken over probably a freshwater layer in the Arctic Ocean and caused such an enormous carbon sequestering event that it threw the entire planet into an ice age. And that's one little plant. <laughs> it's got out of control. Obvious, the, the most significant example still yet in Earth's history, humans will become the most significant but are not yet as significant as this, is the oxygenation of the atmosphere. Earth didn't always have an oxygen atmosphere. We used to have an ammonia and carbon dioxide atmosphere. And that's very, very different um, down to the point of affecting the rocks. You get different types of rocks depending on what kind of atmosphere you have. And the photosynthetic cyanobacteria came into being, you know, three, two billion years ago, something like that. And for about a billion years, there was this big ongoing transition from that carbon dioxide ammonia sort of atmosphere to the nitrogen oxygen atmosphere that we know. And that was such a serious disruption that would have wiped out pretty much all other life other than a few little small branches because oxygen is very dangerous stuff, especially if you're not prepared for it. And, and so like I can, I can continue to list examples uh, throughout history, even on a, on a short time scale, you don't actually get you know, this nice harmonious balance. Actually, you have this constant kind of churn of growth and death and decay and, and you know, new disasters. You get these, some of the more stable ones are these predator-prey cycles where you get a boom of predators that eats all the prey and then they all starve to death. And then the prey doesn't have any more predators because they're all dead. They all starve to death. And then the predator, the prey boom, and then the predators boom in response. You get this kind of cycle. That's one of the more stable things. Another one that happened recently, I don't know if it was human cost or not, but but uh, very plausibly not, is there was a zombie plague in the starfish population, a literal zombie plague. They get this infection where they would sort of become half dead and their arms would crawl in all different directions. They would be ripped apart. And then as, as they contacted other starfish, as, as the sort of decaying matter contacted other starfish, they would also get infected. Um, so the starfish are gone in the Pacific Northwest for the most part. I think there's a few left, but they're basically gone. There used to be tons of starfish, and now there aren't. Um, and that's the kind of thing that just naturally happens in ecosystems, is this constant churn, growth and death, and new things coming in, wiping out old things and replacing them. And then, you know, invasive species obviously are, are part of this process. If you look at humans as, you know, just another life form, it's basically normal. You know, we come in, we cause a mass extinction, we, we cause some trouble, um, and things will settle into a new normal. The thing 
is there's a lot of destruction along the way. You know, it's it's eventually on the scale of a million years, the invasive species problem is not really a problem because they naturalize their their you know some some uh, other species grow up to to counter the the most harmful aspects of an invasive species. You get a new equilibrium in in some new ecological order. And, you know, it all becomes harmonious and balanced again for a while until the next time there's some huge disruption or, and of course, only really balanced on the surface. So that's the actual story of nature is this teeming process of, of creation and destruction. It's not this harmonious, beautiful balance that has nothing, nothing sort of destructive going on in it. And so once you fit humans into that order, it's like, okay, we're a particularly disruptive event, but this is basically normal. Mind you, we are probably going to continue to get bigger and bigger and more and more disruptive uh, to the point of, you know, basically being apocalyptic. But another interesting part of what humans have is the capacity to value these things and to take responsibility for them and to internalize these feedback loops of creation and destruction and, and, and the preservation or, or extinction of certain forms of life, we can internalize all that into our own designed order. We can look at that and say, hey, we actually don't like this invasive species thing going quite as fast as it is. Or like, in particular, I personally hate blackberries. The Himalayan blackberry is a horrible plague in the Pacific Northwest. You know, they taste good, but otherwise they just completely wipe out the natural, the, the, the native ecosystem. And, and they're awfully you know they're very prickly so it's awful to walk through them or around them so there's things like that where we can we can make a value judgment on what nature is doing and we can actually affect it we can say hey we're going to pull up all these stupid blackberries we're going to not let them go go wild here like that we're going to take it slower or in the case of global warming i mean we've we've talked about this a couple of times we've got this process where we're taking all the all the carbon from deep within the earth that probably was was previous life and putting it back into the carbon cycle, into the atmosphere, you know, that's a very disruptive process. Maybe it leads to a new equilibrium where Earth goes back to being its usual state, which is this kind of hothouse, you know, it's tropical or not tropical, but but sort of verdant and teeming with life all the way to the poles because it's actually quite warm. So that's, that's kind of a normal state of, of the Earth that was disrupted by the Ice Age and you know, maybe we're just going back to that with global warming. Obviously, that's going to be a very destructive and disruptive process. Or we can look at that and say, hey, we don't actually want to do that disruptive and destructive process. We actually want to either take it slower or maybe we actually like the sort of semi-Ice Age ecosystem that that we evolved with. And we want to preserve that and we want to garden ourselves towards that. But basically, we're starting to make these decisions by even popping ourselves out of the frame of, oh, yeah, we're just a normal animal and, and whatever we do is natural. As soon as we're popping ourselves out of that frame, we're making these value judgments about what kind of world we want, what kind of natural processes we want. And in other words, we're starting to terraform our environment. We're starting or we're starting to engineer our environment. We're starting to say, hey, actually... We're taking responsibility for the processes of nature, at least these ones and this one and that one. And we're saying, we want this one. We don't want that one. We want to upgrade this one. We want to retard that one. So these are sort of two transformations of thought 
that I think take us a little bit further along this path to a paradigm of interacting with nature and of being in nature that goes beyond that that simple dichotomy. I I think that confronting the element of choice there is important. I like that layout. I do, however, want to maybe there was a, a distinction you made between just buying, for example, that the technological development that makes us care more about ecology is basically a coping mechanism for us now not being able to do the same thing. There is some of that, yeah, in, in, in certain industries, that is definitely a thing that's going on. That being said, a factory in 1950 and a factory in 1850 were very different places with very different levels of impact. There is a an actual improvement that happens on the vector of any single type of technology. But there's also a way that the logic of the overall system plays out. And I think what, when I was discussing earlier that pre-modern conception of nature and why I think it's valuable, this is kind of what I'm trying to get at. You know, it used to be the case with any ecosystem that we could afford to look at things on a very localized level. Like for the Egyptian civilization, the cycles of the Nile were basically the most important thing. You know, maybe on occasion you'd have something crazy happen, like Athenians roll into town and get infected by a plague and then take it back to Greece and so on. But for the most part, you've got fairly stable, localized areas of concern when it comes to ecology. You know, you're looking at your chunk of the Amazon, you're looking at your river, at your mountain range, at your forest that you live near, in your networks of fields that you're taking care of. And on rare occasion, something will happen that we can call a global level impact event. A volcano goes, uh, the sun stops shining for or as brightly for a long time. But we live in a distinct era now in that it is no longer possible for us to escape to that kind of localized area of concern. Right? I think that one of the things you see with very hardcore degrowth people is often also a kind of localism where they kind of want to overthrow or escape or collapse the world system so that they can return to some kind of imagined like local, more harmonious, more pro-social way of living. And there are good, you know, there, there are certain naturally good desires playing out there. But I don't think that this works. And it's not because humans woke up one day and decided in one fell swoop, we're going to become this global force species. But through, you know, millions, billions of very local decisions, slowly this logic started to emerge a new system where we had conscious control over economies, technologies, forms of social production that impacted the world on a global scale. And so the reason I think it's important to highlight why we start caring about ecology at a certain point of material development is that before then, we either don't have the necessity to think on such a high scale, or we don't have the ability to do anything about it, or both. When we get to the point we're at now, we now have both. And this starts getting really important. And that is when, for the first time, we start to think about, okay, what does the global ecology look like? Like, what is the nature and stability of that system? I think I, I would actually even draw less of a distinction between or less of a contradiction between 
disruption and violence and balance than it, it seems like you were doing there. I think that when we talk about a system that is balanced or at peace, this isn't actually contradicting that there might be extreme activity going on within it. It's just to say that that activity is kind of has a very visible, understandable role within that system. I mean, any, you know, the Amazon itself, you you have ferocious predators, you have destruction going on within the system, but it is it's it it has a stability in the overall order. And so I think the question that we have to ask is okay, we're at a point now where that the terraforming is irreversible, right? This is something Bracken mentioned in the article as well. Even if we disappeared tomorrow morning, like people will talk about, oh, our cities would disappear in a few decades. Be that as it may, we've left a print, we've left a ripple within this system, right? People talk about the Anthropocene, how, you know, they, be it on geological level or impact on oceans or, you know, these various things, you can see the marks of human action and we aren't going anywhere. So these things are only going to accelerate. And then the question becomes, okay, is is the sum total of our imprint on the world irreversibly going to just completely level the logic and nature of the global ecology overall? Are, are we basically going to just have to almost totally create artificial means for making the world sustainable for human life? Or is there some way that we can balance out the global ecology, even in the face of localized destruction on a number of levels, you know, and maybe we're able to to restrain or reverse some of them, but it, it doesn't seem like we're going anywhere. And so we're going to have to confront this question of the global ecology and whether what we're doing is at all receivable with the way it currently works or whether we are essentially creating a new global ecology altogether. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's obviously the latter. We are necessarily creating a new global ecology. Good point about, this is something we should definitely get into, is being forced to start to deal with these ecological questions, not just because we decide that we care about them, but because they are of, of, of actual existential necessity at some point of, of growth. So when we're you know, hunter-gatherers, when we're just primitive industrial societies, whatever, we can more or less write off the environmental concerns. Uh, you just say, well, look, there's, there's this whole other world out there. That's the realm of the gods. We don't, we don't worry about that. We do our thing. And it is, not, it is not within our moral responsibility to care about what's going on in nature. And that's, that's a sustainable view up until the point where you're having such a huge impact on nature that it's starting to affect your provision of the things you get from nature. So, you know, one of the first obvious things is to go is clean water and air. And, you know, that happened in the 19th century. The industrial cities became very awful places to live because of their their pollution problems. So you run into these limits, these environmental limits, where something you didn't used to have to think about, which was, you know, the composition of the atmosphere, the quality of the water, etc. Suddenly you're having to really think about it because you've grown to this scale where it actually has become an existential concern. And then what happens, as you point out, is that you start to manage that process. You look at it and you say, well, what do we want from this? What are we getting from it? 
what are the things we need, not just what do we want in this sort of abstracted, like, oh, yeah, it's a value judgment, man, but in the sense of what do we need to survive uh, or, or, or what if we don't deal with this is going to cause a serious disruption, it's going to cause a serious problem for us. You start to internalize these feedback loops into your own order. I've said this before. And that is this necessary process as a result of growth. And so that's that's sort of the first the first thing that happens I, or the first kind of like reason to actually start caring about this. And this is part of the reason we are caring about this. You know, if we're looking at what are the governance problems of the future over the next 100 or 200 years, why do we care about this global warming thing so much? Why do we care about this uh, ecological thing so much? It, you know, it doesn't necessarily seem like it ought to be so central, but I think it actually is fairly important because we are reaching this point where we're rapidly crossing a bunch of limits on on our growth that are imposed by our natural ecosystem. And so one answer is the degrowth thing, say, hey, maybe we shouldn't hit those so fast or even retreat from crossing those. And another answer is, okay, how do we supplement those ecosystem services? How do we make the ecosystem more able to provide for us? So agriculture is actually one example of this, right? An early terraforming. Right, exactly. Like a gathering population starts to starts to run into its carrying limits. And, you know, for a long time, they're just sitting there in that Malthusian equilibrium. But they figure things out like, hey, what if we do this agriculture thing? We, we don't really know what the details of that looked like. But, but eventually they figured out, okay, we can do this agriculture thing. Suddenly we can support a lot more growth. And I think we're sort of going through an analogous process now where we are inherently having to take responsibility for our environmental impact because otherwise we're going to lose a bunch of stuff. So things like pollinators that we depend on for our agriculture, there's all these complex ecosystem problems in maintaining a healthy population of say bees and uh, other pollinators around our around our agricultural fields and in general. And so we're actually having to start to think about that because we're having these colony collapse problems. And there's obviously tons of examples of this. You know, we had to think about the ocean fish like fisheries because we had suddenly gotten the ability to actually just wipe out fish populations, wipe out whole ocean ecosystems by by the way we were fishing. So we have to start thinking, okay, maybe we're going to put a limit on how we do that and we're going to put effort into supplementing the fish stocks. So anyways, we're, we're running by necessity into this problem of terraforming as we grow. And so that's that's the first reason that we might really want to care about this. I left it when I sort of previously I, I said uh, at some point, you know, as we start to take responsibility for these things, we have to it becomes this value judgment. What do we want from the ecosystem? What, what kind of natural processes do we want to supplement? That formulation leaves it kind of open-ended about what do we want? You know, maybe we want this, maybe we want that. But now something we're bringing in is this logic of survival, this logic of need that we're also running into. And so that's starting to answer that question. What kind of ecosystem do we want? Well, we want one that is going to support human life and support the things we want to do. So even just on that level, we're going to run into this environmental problem. Now, if I sort of like project out that logic in its most raw form, 
what I see is that we basically don't care in that view if the vast majority of biodiversity in the world is wiped out, the vast majority of ecosystems are collapsed. We're already 90% of the way there in terms of just uh, perhaps more than 90% in terms of how much of the world is human-controlled ecosystems like agriculture and, and livestock, that kind of thing, versus how much of the ecosystem is wild. Insofar as any, any so-called wild nature at this point is being preserved more or less intentionally by a conscious choice not to go into it, I would even call those, in a sense, human-made ecosystems. Yeah, but 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 even there, there's a wildness to them in that we're not actually actively managing them in in or we are actively managing them in some ways, but but in other ways we aren't. Well, I, I would I would point out though, in a lot of places, those areas were not actually originally devoid of humans, right? right. Like this is one yeah, of the, the depopulated uh, areas. parts of the history of the American park system was that in a lot of these places there were there you know local indigenous tribes that played stewardship roles and hippies those, don't forget the hippies and hippies <laughs> in, in those environments and the humans were basically removed from them when the parks were established and so you get these kind of fake ancient wildernesses that actually had not existed like that for thousands of years perhaps not since before humans even arrived in North America, at which point they probably look completely different from what they do in this so-called, you know, pristine wilderness of the park. Yeah, yeah in, in some cases. Right. And But w- what I'm really getting at is, is like, if we project forward the logic of pure necessity, at least in, in sort of a reactive sense, I think we wipe out the vast majority of the world's biodiversity. We wipe out almost all ecosystems that we don't directly manage and depend on. And we might even wipe out our own ecosystems because we'll depend on things that are not necessarily visible until it's too late. So things like this pollinator issue, that's where, you know, we think we've got agriculture under control. Actually, it depends on these pollinators, which are semi-wild. And if, if we try to really cultivate them intensively, then we get all these disease problems. And, and so there's a bunch of stuff we rely on that's like hard to see and hard to balance. So I think projecting out that logic, we wipe it all out and then we actually have a big collapse. Like I think at some point you get a really hard loss of ecosystem services and it becomes like some kind of Blade Runner sort of eco-collapse future. Right. Where, that, that's where, where we get the no real apocalyptic Mad Max wasteland thing, right? Where, where I think that's what a lot of people have in mind when they think of a kind of total human impact. Like imagine if the logic of human human success just was allowed to play out in an uncontrolled way. Yeah. And, and, and so I'm saying that I think that happens even with the first order logic of ecological dependence. Like the, even if we know we depend on natural ecosystems and we take action reactively to preserve the ecosystem services that we actually re- immediately rely on, I think you still end up with something like that. So then there's this question of, okay, is that acceptable? Is that a good outcome? Or do we want a different outcome? I think we want a different outcome. I think we don't want to get, I don't think we want to hit the wall so hard, first of all. Second of all, I think there actually is just value in, you know, all that biodiversity and, and, and wild ecosystem stuff. You know, aesthetic value is the obvious one. But I think you know, there's there's an element of kind of taking even the survival value of it seriously enough to preserve it in the case like because of unknown unknowns. 
Right. We don't know all the outcomes of collapsing that entire system. Right. Like, like it's it's the classic. It's the classic modernism problem, right? In modernism, it's like, okay, we have total confidence in our scientific abilities, our scientific development. We're going to smash up this whole complex system and replace it with a grid of rectangles. Uh, everything's going to be totally scientifically managed top to bottom. Very, It's going to be complicated, but, but everything is highly controlled. And I think what happens in practice with that view is that that doesn't work because actually there's a lot of these balances and feedback loops and unknown factors that you simply can't plan and you can't know. You have to interact with it in this more respectful, like you have to respect this this black box kind of complex system. Or more to the point, right? It does work according to the logic that you've laid out. But, you know, it reminds me of something you said when we had our discussion about the internet, where, uh, yeah, there were all these grand ideas, but if you look at the immediate decisions people were making, a completely different logic was playing out. Well, in what you've just described, where you just have sort of a total scientific control and you don't really keep autonomy for the other parts, what you've described there is either an asylum or a jail. And both of those are horrific places to be and terrible for the human soul, for human well-being, for psychological health. In, I, I think in a sense, if we want to ask this question, okay, we have here before discussed humans as in some sense stewards, and stewards or gardeners, implicit in that seems to be some idea that the other parts of the system, their value lies not just in their relation to us, although they do have value for us as well but also they have a kind of value in and of themselves. Or, or you have to act like that. Right. Well, if I have to think of the difference between a, a village versus an asylum or a jail, it's that in the village, you don't control. I mean, you know, there are sort of laws people follow, but the autonomy of the different parts is preserved to an extremely high degree. And it turns out that that kind of free interplay is actually important for all the members involved. Thanks for listening. We've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast. The second half is available on our Patreon. You can sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. It usually gets better in the second half, so you don't want to miss it. This project wouldn't be viable without your support, so we hope to see you soon.